to Revelation chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. I'll read 14 through 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich. And white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches. After entering through the gates of hell, the first place that Dante and his guide Virgil come to in uh, the book of the Divine Comedy is the vestibule, where Dante hears loud groanings of despair. This is what he writes. And I who had my head with horror bound said, Master, what is this which now I hear? What folk is this which seems by pain so vanquished? And he said to me, This miserable mode maintained the melancholy souls of those who lived without infamy or praise. And I said, O Master, what so grievous is to these that make them lament so sore? He answered, I will tell you very briefly, these have no longer any hope of death, and this blind life of theirs is so debased, they envious are of every other fate. No fame of them the world permits to be, misery and justice both disdain them. For with I comprehended and was certain that this, the sect was of the caitiff wretches, hateful to God and to his enemies. And Dante's point is uh, the residents of the vestibule are, are essentially those who refuse to take sides. They're described as being neither explicitly good nor explicitly bad. They were simply apathetic. They, they lacked passion in life to, for either good things or evil things. Essentially, they were just content to merely be and to float like a piece of driftwood on the ocean. And therefore, Dante imagined for them a fate wherein they would wander aimlessly, accomplishing nothing, and yet forever being pained, because like their lives, their deaths were aimless, with nothing to look forward to or to fear. And sadly, many of the church attenders in this world, embrace the same sort of apathy. They're content to just merely be, to 
engage in their Christianity as a passionless, purposeless pursuit of simply checking off the next box that's in front of them in their spiritual duties. And this was essentially the, the state of the church of Laodicea, which is the seventh and last of the churches that receives an assessment from Christ in this book. Now, Laodicea was actually one of the most prosperous cities in all of the Roman Empire. It was not unlike many of the modern-day cities of America. It was known as a major center for banking and trade. It actually had a, a, a well-known medical practice established there where they uh, created this thing called Phrygian powder, which was a substance that was used to anoint people's eyes and treat ailments of the eye. It was famous for its textile industry, producing this this fashionable black wool uh, from the sheep of that area. And they would be used for clothing and carpets. And because it was so prosperous, the city actually had a lot to be proud of. And likewise, the people in the church of Laodicea were probably very prosperous as well. Which inevitably resulted in a distracted and lukewarm worship. And therefore, despite their evident prosperity, Jesus has actually some very harsh words for this church. Very simple outline, similar to the outlines we've seen with the other letters. He begins with theological introduction. He just dives right into the problems. There's no commendations for this church. He does identify what is the solution to the problems that he addresses, but then he also follows this up with some future hope for the church. Let's look first at the theological introduction. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. The reason Jesus describes himself in these ways actually is to wake the, uh, I'll just call it the sleepy church, wake them up from their uh, spiritual apathy by way of contrast. In effect, he's contrasting himself with them. He says where he is true, that's essentially the meaning of amen, they are actually spiritual frauds. Whereas he is the faithful and true witness, they are hypocrites, claiming to follow Christ but really being apathetic towards him. And although the Laodiceans prided themselves in all that they were able to produce and manufacture, Jesus says, but I'm the creator of all things. I'm the beginning of everything, of all of creation. And so his point is, your pride is sorely misguided. Even though, even though they assumed that they were, because of their success, paragons of humanity, they, were, they, 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 they probably saw themselves as spiritual giants, Jesus actually calls them out as spiritual frauds. Again, because they're assessing their spirituality, their maturity, their spiritual maturity based on their uh, external success, their financial success, rather than how they actually live their lives, and particularly without regard to their actual affections for Christ. And in verses 15 through 17, Jesus explains the problem. Namely, that they are lukewarm in their worship. And this is exacerbated by self-deception. And they think they're spiritual hot stuff. But Jesus says, no, you're actually pretty tepid. Like 
the water supply around Laodicea. This brings us to the problems he addresses. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And Laodicea was not established along any major bodies of water. And so in order for it to get its water to the city, they actually had to uh, draw from uh, some hot springs that were about six miles away. And it would be taken via aqueduct uh, to the city. And often by the time the, the water from the hot springs, which was hot, of course, traveled down to Laodicea, it was lukewarm when it arrived. And so Jesus says, your, your worship is really like your water. It's tepid. And that's why Jesus exhorts them, you'll notice in verse 19, be zealous and repent. That word zeal, we'll look at it again. It means, its root essentially means to boil. And he says, I wish you would boil. Had a, had a heart inflamed with love um, for, for him. That's what he wishes. I mean, because, I mean, who wants an anemic lover? I mean, imagine if a, a husband were to propose or a, a, a man proposed to his girlfriend and just said, you know, let's just do this because it just seems like a good idea. You know, no passion. It's, she said, I wish you would at least boil. And he actually goes as far as to say, I wish you were either cold or hot. I mean, coldness would be better than lukewarmness. Now, he's comparing the Christians to their water supply, but his main point is they have a rotten spiritual temperature. That's why he says, again, were you either cold or hot? Now, it's worth asking, why would Jesus find lukewarmness more repugnant than spiritual coldness? I think it's because those who zealously oppose Christ, those who would be spiritually cold, and those who zealously love Christ, who are hot, they have one thing in common. And that is they at least take him seriously. They hate him because they know who he is. Or they love him because they know who he is. But to not feel anything for him and to treasure their own success is absolutely offensive. So why were the Laodiceans lukewarm in their worship? Well, I mentioned it. They, they were self-deceived on account of their material success. Like they were lukewarm because they were self-deceived. It says they, they, they believed that they were material, because they were materially rich, they were also spiritually rich. Look at verse 17. You say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. And, and that last statement there, I need nothing, is very telling. Right? It's, it's, for a believer to say, I don't need anything, it's almost inconceivable. Because really a Christian is entirely dependent upon God's grace for everything. Right? That's why Jesus told his disciples in John 15, Abide in me and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. 
If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown the fire and burn. And, and, and these loudest scenes are like a bunch of branches that are priding themselves in being separated from the vine, being ready to be burnt. That's essentially what Jesus is saying. You are in grave spiritual danger and you think you're hot stuff. Because you make good money. Because you're safe and secure. Even the great apostle Paul recognized that every good thing he accomplished was solely by grace, right? He, he writes in 1 Corinthians 15, by the grace of God I am what I am. In comparing himself to the other apostle, he says, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God in me. He, he's not, he, there's no self-sufficiency at all. He says, I, for me to accomplish anything, I need God's grace for. And so to assume self-sufficiency is the height of spiritual folly. If a person doesn't need anything, then they, they don't need Christ. In effect, they reject a self-sufficient person rejects Christ. But obviously, we need Christ for salvation, but the reality is we need Christ for everything. Because he gives life and breath to, to all things. Like there, the idea of self-sufficiency is just a fat lie. There is the most rabid atheist, the most zealous Satan worshiper is completely dependent upon Christ for everything. Romans eleven thirty six: for from him and through him and to him are all things. You know, it's important, I think, that we notice that there is a very strong theological connection connection between self-sufficiency or assumed self-sufficiency, I'd say, because self-sufficiency isn't even a reality. Assume self-sufficiency and lukewarm worship. There's a very strong connection between the two. Those who recognize their need, their spiritual need, are always the most zealous worshipers for Christ. Some examples. Blind Bartimaeus. The man on the road who kept crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me. And, it, and the emphasis on he kept crying out. He was relentless. Why? Because he knew his need. And because he knew his need, he knew who Christ was. And that's the one thing he wanted. The Syrophoenician woman, likewise, she had this desperate need for her daughter to be freed from this demon. And even though she was from a pagan nation, she begged Christ. And even when he kind of put her off, she said, yes, but even the dogs... Get the scraps from the master's table. And he, and he marveled at her faith. And the sinful woman of Luke 7, right? She loved much, right? Passionate love, weeping, tears, humiliation. She didn't care what anybody else around her thought. She just wanted to pour out her affection for Christ. Why? Because she had been forgiven much. It's true. Like throughout the scriptures, the most zealous worshipers are those who understand how desperate they are for Christ's grace. Right? Whose, whose worship was more fervent? The Pharisee or the tax collector? The Pharisee worshipped, I thank you, God, that I'm not like this guy. But this man beat his chest. He would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's worship. Right? And it's not apathetic. 
It's not just, I believe these doctrines about you, God. I mean, the, the grace and forgiveness of Christ was everything to these people. Because they understood how desperately they needed it. And so you see this correspondence between assumed self-reliance and a lack of faith. If a person also lacks love, that also shows assumed self-reliance. A lack of faith, a lack of love is often due to an assumed self-reliance. I just think about Paul's loveless self-reliance. His existence before he became a believer. Right in Philippians 3, he describes his existence. He says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees. As the zeal, a persecutor of the church. As for righteousness of the law, blameless. But then his, recognize the dependency he understood afterwards. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And you hear the passion here. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, nothing having to do with me. I don't want any reliance on myself. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Right? That's why he said in Galatians 2, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Complete self-reliance. And you see how that's linked to his love. It's linked to his faith. Right? And that's why he says for, for Trinity to live as Christ now to die as gain. Right? His faith in Christ is what causes him to love Christ so passionately. Because he knows his need. There is no more self-reliance in Paul. And I think many people grow up in the church who grow up in the church also assume that, that what God primarily wants from them is, is just obedience. And so they pour out their lives in sacrificial service, but they never really give their heart to him because they're afraid if they do, they're going to be hurt. Or they're going to find out that God's just going to be disappointed. And so they just keep working. They just keep trying. Much like Martin Luther. In fact, because of that, he even said he hated God. Because he, couldn't, he felt like no matter how much he did, God would never love him. Until, of course, he came to the truth of justification by faith alone as he read the book of Romans. Their fear drives them to self-reliance, their failure of failure, their fear of being hurt. And, and it blinds them to, their, to the, the fact they don't really have real faith because their faith is in their performance, in God being pleased with them. Their faith isn't in Christ, it's in themselves, what they can do what they, to protect themselves and to work to please God. But when a person understands that God loves them, not because of anything they do for Him, but simply because He chooses to love Him, that revelation casts out all fear. They have nothing more to fear because they recognize God shows his own love for us in this, in that while we were still sinners, he died for us. If he, if he died for us while we were sinners, while we were repugnant in his eyes, 
Now we're his children. There is no way anything's going to separate us from the love of Christ. There's, his love isn't based on anything in us. It's simply based upon his choice to love us. And if he loved us when we were hideous, now that we've been sanctified and washed, we're useful to him, and we love him back, there's no way we could ever lose his affection. True love casts out fear. Fear is like this, this slave master that says you've got to do, you've got to perform, you've got to prove yourself, and it will never say enough. But love says, I can trust God with my heart. And what happens is when people begin to enjoy a certain amount of success in life, it's very tempting for them to believe that their value, their worth, their security is in those things that brought them success. I was diligent. I got good grades. My parents were pleased. My teachers were pleased. That must be what's going to please God. You know, I, 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 was, I was pretty. I dressed well. That's what people value about me. They assume their values rooted in worldly things. Knowledge, beauty, could be strength, organization, athletic ability. And over time, they just begin to focus on those things because that's the stuff where value is found. That's where their worth is found. And, they, and then therefore, they want others to notice those things about them. And ever so subtly, they become more fervent about the things that bring about their perceived success than they are for Christ. That's how lukewarm worship is produced. When we become more focused on what we do, what we accomplish, what we're able to perform, rather than understanding how much has been given to us in Christ. And so it's worth asking. When you meet people, what is it that they, you want them to know about you? You may not bring it up, but what is it that you want them to know? What would you want them to discover, to find out? You know, we're, we're pretty good at being humble, at least pretending to be humble. You know, we're not going to go out and say, hey, I have this degree from this institution. You know, I've accomplished these many athletic events and trophies and successes. But we'll want them to ask the question, like, what are those things? You want people to know about you. And how often do you talk about your own successes in comparison to the grace of God in your life? And if I asked your friends, what would they say you're most passionate about? Politics? Work? Academics? Sports? Or is it Christ? And Christ is warning the church in Laodicea that their success has actually blinded them to their true spiritual condition. Right? Look at verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing, in other words, you're wrong. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That is not a commendation. 
Now they assume they're they assume they're doing great, but they are blind to the very grave spiritual danger that they're in. A few years ago, I, I heard a tragic story of some kids who went to um, a neighbor's house while they were away on vacation. And during the middle of the night, they, they snuck over the fence uh, in order to go swimming in their neighbor's swimming pool. And blinded by the dark and, and confident you know, in their successful entry, they failed to do a, a thorough investigation of their surroundings. And so after jumping the fence, one of the young men ran up on the diving board and did a flip. But instead of hearing a splash, his friends just heard a blood-curdling crunch. Because the pool had been drained of its water the day before. And their confidence in their success of finally making an entry is actually what led them to not do a thorough investigation of the surroundings. And that's what led to their death. They were blind to the reality of how the danger they were actually in. And so not wanting the Laodiceans to have a similar fate, Jesus tells them that they're blind to the reality of their situation. But he gives them some counsel. These are the solutions he gives to their blindness. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And white garments so you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and solved to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So he, he first counsels them essentially to turn to him for true satisfaction. Your, your, your worth, your value is not in your accomplishments. It's not in your material success. Right? He calls them to buy gold from him, but refined by fire. And that's it's representative of true spiritual riches, wealth of eternal value. As Jesus said, treasures that is stored up in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy and where thieves cannot break in and steal. It's, it's true riches, true treasure. And he calls them to adorn themselves with white garments, possibly in contrast to that black wool I was telling you about that Laodicea was so famous for. White garments, which represent holiness, being set apart for God, in the same way that a bride is set apart from all other women to be her husbands. She belongs to Him. Christians are holy because they've been set apart for God. And then that, that should be evident that they belong to him. And they should have a passionate love for him. And notice also that the clothes, these white garments, would cover the reality of their spiritual nakedness. I think the point being is you, a person could walk around in an Armani suit or a Christian Dior dress and still be spiritually naked. Right? What you're wearing on the outside, even what people think of you on the outside, means nothing. They might think you're a really good, obedient kid. But in your heart, you're, you'd rather just still just live for yourself rather than for Christ. They were clothed with the finest earthly materials, but they were actually exposed. It's a very vivid word. They were exposed as naked before God.
that your nakedness may not be seen, he says. Your exposure would not be seen. He doesn't want them to be embarrassed. He doesn't want them to be shamed. He wants them to be clothed. But in other words, he's saying, I want it to be real. Stop with the fakery. Stop with the blindness. Be real. Love me. And that's why he says these hard things. And he's particularly hard on Laodiceans. He's brutally honest, but he's truthful and understand why. Look at verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. I mean, these hard words are all love. And often loving a person means telling them the frank truth. Even if it's hard. And often this is what we have to do when a person's blind to their true spiritual condition. And because we struggle with self-worship, even after becoming Christians, frankly, it's hard to hear anything that's not flattering or affirming. But true love does not necessarily do what's going to make a person feel good or say what's going to make a person feel better. No, it shouldn't be brutal, it shouldn't be mean. Right, should give grace. But often that grace means you just got to be honest with what's really going on. True love warns a friend before he plunges into an empty swimming pool. Even though that warning may temporarily shame the friend because they didn't have enough wisdom to look around them. So again, the first thing he counsels them to do is to turn away from what they're trusting in. Turn away from these earthly idols, the the things you're putting your pride in, and and turn to me. And second, he tells them, be zealous and repent. The word again, zealous, has the same root as to boil. It's the same root as the word hot that's used earlier. I would you that you were cold or hot. I wish you were hot. I wish you were zealous. And his point is, lukewarm worship is not true worship. If a person is lukewarm in their worship of Christ, it's because there's something else competing with Christ for their affections. That's just the honest reality. It's, you're not a worshiper of Christ. Christ demands all our worship, to love him with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. Any tepidness in our worship is a result of idolatry. So if a wife found out that her husband had been sleeping with multiple other women, how should she expect that husband to respond to that conviction? She said, I don't think your your affections are fully for me. How do you respond? You get rid of the other lovers. That's what repentance looks like. Christ says, I want all your heart. True Christian worship is zealous. It's it's white hot. A person, if they're lukewarm in their worship of Christ, again, it's because something else is competing with their love for Christ. 
I love this word zeal, and I like to depict zeal using an illustration of a garden hose or the nozzle on a garden hose. Consider that the nozzle on a garden hose just has the simple purpose of directing with focus the water to 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 a particular place. And the more focused that the nozzle is, the more intense it's going to be, and the more accurately it's going to, the water's going to be directed. We also know that the water leaving a hose without a nozzle is going to lack that intensity. It's just going to kind of drip out, right? You put a nozzle on it, it's intense, especially if it's really tight. So the more focus, the more intensity. The less focus, less intensity. It illustrates zeal as well. The more focused we are on Christ, the more passionate we're going to be for him. The more accurately we understand the gospel, the more focused we're going to be on Christ. Therefore, the more zealous, the more intense our worship is going to be. Right? When we're distracted, when we've got a lot of other things on our mind, a lot of other things occupying us, right? that's going to... We're not going to be focused. We're going to be spread thin, and therefore we're not going to be intense in our worship because our delights are in so many other things. Our ambitions are spread out. They're not focused. Zeal means we're focused, right? What makes a, a fan a fanatic is that they, they obsess over their team winning. Now, it's silly and, I, frankly, foolish to truly be a fanatic of a team. And I enjoy sports as much as the next person. But it's to be zealous for something so superficial. Christ says, you should be that way for me. The more distracted and busy with the things of this world, the weaker our worship is going to be. And that's why Jesus exhorts them, repent. But notice his invitation in verse 20. And the hope he extends to them. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. And as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is a stunning picture. Because what Jesus is saying is that he's essentially been shut out of the Laodicean church. You know, they decided to decorate their church with that black wool. They got potions of Phrygian powder, maybe, that they can give away to visitors. You know, they're full of wealth. They got the nicest pews, stained glass windows, whatever it was. They look awesome. But Jesus isn't there. He's outside knocking on the door is what he's saying. They're so focused upon all the great things that they've accomplished, they've missed the whole purpose of their worship. Their whole purpose in being a church has been lost. And so, in great mercy, Jesus beckons them, open up the doors in order that he might have, again, sweet fellowship with them. Their prosperity had effectively pushed Christ out the back door. There are many legends about the building of the Taj Mahal. Historians tell us that Emperor Shah Jahan 
uh, built it because his wife had died. And he was so devastated by her loss that he, just, he, he vowed that he was going to build this great mausoleum, the greatest in the world, uh, to honor her memory. And he had her coffin placed in the center of a very large piece of land and, and a temple essentially began to be built up around it. And no expense was spared. Her final resting place would become, and still is, one of the greatest wonders of the world. But as weeks turned into months, his grief over his wife subsided and his passion to build this temple grew. And construction consumed him. And one day, while walking along the, one of the construction sites, uh, his leg bumped against a wooden box. And he, he brushed the dust off his leg and then he ordered one of the workers to throw that box out. He didn't note that he'd actually just ordered the disposal of his wife's own coffin. Which was now hidden beneath layers of dust and forgotten. And like Shah Jahan, many, many Christians often forget the very purpose of why they gather for worship. Instead, they're, they're distracted, seeking satisfaction in the stuff of the world. And even though often the things that distract them are not sinful, they're, they're amoral. They might even be good. Still, the fact that they're distracted is not okay. Even if you're distracted with something like as precious as your children, it's not okay. You're distracted because of your work. But our work should never distract us from Christ. God created us for the purpose of worshiping Him. And that we would love Him with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all of our strength. And the grace of Christ, again, is clearly manifested in how he's responding to these self-worshippers. Again, they, they pushed him out of the church and he's knocking on their door. But you see the grace. He's, again, figuratively standing out there knocking on the door of, of their hearts, beckoning them to let him back in. He's not abandoning them. He's not saying good riddance, which is what we'd expect him to do. He persistently knocks to gain their attention. And so nobody would ever, ever, ever be able to say to the Lord that he failed to call them. And notice, too, he calls them individually. Right? If anyone hears my voice and opens the door. He's calling them individually, rapping on the doors of their hearts as, as if the, the owners are asleep. So again, there's an appeal to individuals. It's not just the, the church to repent. Christ is calling individuals to be zealous and repent. But again, the stress is in our responsibility to actually get up out of our seat, to go to Christ, and to open the door and to welcome Him in, to give Him our heart, to trust Him with our lives. With our security. And, and until we do that, our fellowship with Him cannot be restored. And if we've never done that, we just don't know what kind of fellowship we're missing out on. Let alone the consequences of dying outside of the forgiveness of Christ.
Christ says, I'm knocking. Be zealous and repent. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would stir up our heart as a church. All the individuals in our church, members, attenders, visitors, Lord, stir us up to be zealous to worship you. Help us to see what's distracting us. What are, what are the lies that we've believed? What are the, the stumbling blocks? What are the hindrances? What is it that is interfering with us wholeheartedly living for you? I pray that you'd open our eyes to these things so that we would be a church that is truly fervent in our worship of you. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.